Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the journal Global Summetry. It's my absolute pleasure today to introduce to you a colleague, Mark Beeson, from the University of Western Australia in Perth. This uh, interview is a continuation in the series a Summit Dialogue, and Mark and I are going to explore the, uh, the Summit ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, including uh, the Philippines, Indonesia, and has come to also now include Thailand and Vietnam. In fact, there are 10 uh, summit members uh, for ASEAN. ASEAN has been meeting since uh, 1967, and it recently held its most recent summit in Singapore. This was the 32nd summit uh, for ASEAN. And in this podcast, Mark and I explored the dynamics of the politics and economics of the region. So let's join uh, with Mark in this discussion of this uh, vital summit, ASEAN, and explore the politics and economics of this, as I said, vital region. Well, it's a real pleasure uh, to introduce today uh, Mark Beeson, uh, and we are going to be talking about ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian uh, Nations, a particular summit in the Asia-Pacific region. So welcome, Mark. Thank you very much, Alan. Okay. Uh, so uh, ASEAN, this association, uh, formed in February 1967. It brought together Thailand, Indonesia, Philippines, and Singapore. Uh, why did the summit, uh, this summit come together, Mark? Well, that's a good question, and there's different opinions about uh, its origins uh, and purpose uh, ever since, really. And it's worth pointing out at the outset, I think, that uh, if you talk to people who take an interest in ASEAN, uh, they have uh, very different opinions about the significance of ASEAN, how it's operated, and its overall contribution. And there are real differences between the skeptics and the enthusiasts. And I have to say that I'm in the slightly more skeptical camp, uh, and that might colour some of the views that I offer. But And that's true about the origins of uh, ASEAN's development, because when it came together in 1967, it's important to remember that ASEAN itself had had a few... Uh, differences between some of the members, most famously between Indonesia and Malaysia, the so-called confrontation, uh, and that was taking some resolving. Uh, more importantly than that even, I think, was the fact that the, the uh, Cold War was in full swing in the East Asian region, the Vietnam War uh, was at its height, uh, and the countries of ASEAN uh, felt insecure and threatened by this pretty forbidding uh, geopolitical environment. And I, I think that was the real reason they decided to get together, that there would be uh, strength in numbers uh, and they would be uh, uh, less uh, susceptible to being pressured by these uh, major powers that were uh, defining the region's uh, security relationships in many ways. But if you look at the ASEAN website from the time and the initial declaration about the purposes of ASEAN, which is a very short document, but it was about economic growth, social progress, cultural development, very worthy ideas, but, uh, but perhaps not the real reasons that uh, ASEAN initially got together. So I take it that the source of your skepticism really arises from 
the question of origins. That is, why did these guys come together? Uh, that's part of it. I mean, but the, I think there's, a, there's been a continuing uh, debate about how much credit to attribute to ASEAN and its role in keeping the peace uh, in, the, in the Southeast Asian region, in East Asia more generally, mm -hmm. uh, and about the significance of its uh, famous uh, ASEAN style of diplomacy. And some, th some people think that uh, the peace of Asia, as it's sometimes called, is entirely attributable to uh, ASEAN and its efforts of uh, confidence building. Some other people think, uh, and I'm one of these, that uh, the uh, interstate war has been in precipitate decline around the world, and Southeast Asia is no exception in this regard. Mm -hmm. uh, there's plenty of conflict in the world, but it's generally within national borders, not between uh, different states. So ASEAN's uh, the rule rather than the exception in terms of peacekeeping, I think. So that's why I'm a little bit skeptical about uh, giving ASEAN too much credit for something that's a fairly universal phenomenon, I think. Okay, that, that's very helpful. I guess one other little piece, you, you mentioned the ASEAN style of diplomacy, and it probably is uh, valuable to just review that briefly with, sure. with our audience. Uh, basically, they, they talk about the so-called ASEAN way, and this is the idea that uh, ASEAN's uh, interactions amongst the members are based on informality, uh, consensually arrived uh, decisions, uh, and, a, and a desire to uh, make sure that nobody loses face in the, uh, in, the, in the production of these kinds of agreements between ASEAN members. Now, that's fine as far as it goes, but the problem is that uh, you get a situation where you can get the, the politics of the lowest common denominator. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of agreements that everybody feels comfortable with, uh, that nobody feels uh, threatened by, uh, and that everybody can sign off on. And there's no... Uh, compulsion to agree with them uh, even if they are fairly undemanding. So it's a, it's a very different kind of organization to the European Union, for example, where the uh, European Commission has real power over the members and uh, can really compel them to behave in particular ways. The ASEAN Secretariat, by comparison, is very weak and small. It has no real capacity to compel the members to do anything they want to at all. And that's the way it's been designed. And I think it's important to recognize that that's been part of the structure of ASEAN from the outset. Fair enough. And, and the question then becomes, I, I think, how that ASEAN way has kind of evolved in, in the face of uh, an ASEAN which uh, now, today, and over the past number of years, is uh, larger, includes 10 members. So uh, in addition to the original group, uh, uh, Thailand, Indonesia, Philippines, and Singapore. You, there's a, the addition of Brunei, Vietnam, Malaysia, Myanmar, Cambodia, and Laos. I, I guess the question is, does the lowest common denominator uh, in effect accommodate then such a large number of states? Well, I think, it, I think it's had to in a, in a sense that uh, uh, ASEAN's had its kind of uh, widening moment, as the uh, as the European Union's done, but it, arguably it hasn't had the kind of deepening moment. In other words, the political integration and cooperation uh, within the ASEAN uh, grouping remains fairly limited and 
and not not that significant in terms of uh, actual diplomatic uh, outcomes. And I think it's also important to recognize that uh, some of the new members are not only uh, authoritarian states and uh, mm -hmm. often not democratic, which is an issue in itself, but they've got limited capacities in terms of the kinds of... Uh, uh, diplomats they can send to uh, ASEAN meetings and ASEAN has an awful lot of meetings every year and in some ways that's kind of a good thing because it's undoubtedly good for confidence building and the people involved in those meetings certainly get to know each other uh, and that's got to be good for uh, intra-regional relations at some level but it's mm -hmm. it's also it's also a bit of a stretch for some of the poorer nations like Laos and Cambodia to be able to come up with the numbers of people and devote them to attending all of these kinds of ASEAN meetings. So I think it's important to recognize that the state capacity, if you like, of some of the newer ASEAN members is not that great, uh, and getting them to agree to uh, some of the more ambitious uh, initiatives that have been put forward by uh, ASEAN so-called more liberal members at different times, that's been difficult to get agreement on some of the more challenging kind of uh, things that have been put forward from time to time. Mm. Have there been, Mark, uh, material accomplishments, though, over, I mean, it's a very long period of time that this uh, summit has been, uh, has gathered since 1967. So are there uh, accomplishments you can point to, uh, even with your skepticism uh, for, for the organization? I thought, yeah, I, thought, I think undoubtedly there are. As I say, the, the very the very fact that ASEAN's existed for for this long, and it's the the most uh, enduring organisation of its type outside of uh, Europe mm -hmm. uh, in the so-called developing world, as it used to be known. I think that in itself is quite an achievement because there was a great deal of scepticism about uh, how it would perform and and what what it would actually do. So the fact that it exists at all is uh, no small accomplishment and to be fair it has made some uh, some important initiatives over the year I, th I think they're limited in number but I mean the first it didn't have it actually have its first major summit after the initial one of 1967 when it started till, till 1976 it did come up with a couple of important uh, initiatives then it came up with the uh, the Bali conference it came up with the treaty of amity and cooperation which was a way of trying to encourage members and indeed non-members uh, to uh, subscribe to a particular set of norms and principles that encourage the peaceful settlement of conflicts and so a very well-intentioned initiative and again to be fair uh, there hasn't been uh, a major conflict certainly between the ASEAN members in the region uh, since ASEAN was formed so that's uh, not to be underestimated uh, there was also the Bali declaration that was intended to uh, encourage greater economic integration. I think the the uh, the verdict on ASEAN's ability to be able to encourage greater economic integration is, I think, pretty mixed. Mm -hmm. uh, there have been some initiatives, such as the ASEAN Free Trade Agreement, uh, which has been intended to encourage this process. Uh, some people think it hasn't had a huge impact, but I think, again, to be fair, it was intended to encourage uh, multinational corporations to invest in the Southeast Asian region and uh, there's no doubt that ASEAN uh, or some of the ASEAN economies have emerged uh, as important parts of a regional production network and arguably that kind of confidence building those kinds of positive signals that things like AFTA sent to would-be investors clearly they must have made some kind of difference I think although it's 
very difficult to measure exactly how much and uh, and who was influenced by which particular initiatives. But I think generally it's been good for confidence building and encouraging people to take the region seriously as a as a reliable and safe place to invest money. All right, uh, All right. Uh, that makes some sense. Uh, I guess the question is. So this effort at uh, the free trade, the ASEAN Economic Community, I take it is a, uh, while it encourages uh, economic activity, has not, you know, you've not seen a a dramatic uh, integration of the 10 economies, I take it from your view. I, I don't think so. And uh, th there's, a, there's a question about... Uh whether it's actually necessary in some ways for the ASEAN grouping as a formal organization mm -hmm. to drive some of these processes because in many ways it's been the private sector overwhelmingly that's uh, drive the economic integration that has occurred and some of the ASEAN economies have been very sensitive about uh, opening up uh, their economies too rapidly to the forces of trade liberalization because they have been keen to protect uh, certain areas of their economies and the uh, and the kind of East Asian uh, state-led industrialization process has relied in part on uh, subsidizing, assisting, protecting domestic in industry until it's in a position to comp compete with the rest of the world. So in some ways, I mean, it's kind of not surprising that the ASEAN states might have been sensitive about this, but I think they have try to send positive signals to uh, multinational corporations from places like Japan in particular uh, that uh, they're kind of open for business and they're going to try and facilitate some of those complex regional production structures yep. uh, that do now span the region. So they've played a pretty useful role in doing some of that, I think. But uh, as I say, much of the the heavy lifting, as it were, has been done by the private sector and multinational corporations, often from outside the region. Interesting. I mean, I wanted to ask you then about, and maybe this is less on the economic uh, dimension than on the security dimension, about the role of the ASEAN plus three or the ASEAN dialogue partners. The plus three, of course, uh, meaning uh, China, Japan and Korea. Has that had any impact in terms of economic activity or economic integration, or is it more on the security dimension? How does one measure the the ASEAN plus three? Yeah, I, I think there's a few things going on. As far as the dialogue partners are concerned, mm -hmm. uh, occasionally it, they have made a bit of a difference. So I'm from Australia, and Australia's played a pretty activist role in regional diplomacy, and uh, one of our former... Uh, foreign ministers, Gareth Evans, played a very important role in encouraging ASEAN to develop a regional security community, which ASEAN was a bit reluctant to do. And I think this speaks to ASEAN's continuing uh, concern about uh, its role as the central driver of regional politics and diplomacy. They see themselves as famously being in the driving seat of regional diplomacy and they get very sensitive when they think that that role is being encroached upon or, or another organization might be seeking to usurp that role. So when Gareth Evans, for example, suggested that they set up what turned out to be the ASEAN Regional Forum, the, the region's uh, major security uh, organization, uh, they were initially a bit lukewarm about this, but mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it came into being anyway. But again, the ASEAN Regional Forum ought to be 
the premier regional security organization uh, that's in a perfect position to do an important job in trying to sort out some of the region's security problems. But in reality, of course, because it subscribes to the so-called ASEAN way and it's based on consensus and agreement, it doesn't really have the capacity to do anything serious uh, about things like the uh, territorial disputes in the South China Sea mm -hmm. or the tensions on the Korean Peninsula or a range of really important uh, issues that they could be seen to be doing something about. So I think that's kind of emblematic of the the limit to the impact of the so-called dialogue partners. And I think the ASEAN plus three mechanism is another interesting offshoot of this. But again, it's it reveals the same kinds of concerns on the part of the ASEAN grouping that if they uh, went ahead with the ASEAN plus three grouping, there was a real possibility that China would dominate that grouping. Mm -hmm. uh, and China was quite keen to do that. Uh, and they were concerned about losing their centrality in the decision making and uh, diplomacy uh, of the region. So they were they were ambivalent about this. It was the in some ways it looked like the obvious kind of thing to do. And I have to say that I thought that ASEAN plus three would be the most important uh, organization in the region. But that hasn't turned out to be the case. Mm -hmm. And there's been a whole series of other uh, regional initiatives that have popped up since then, which have kind of duplicated or overlapped with this. And so I think, you know, ironically, one of the big problems in the region is that there are too many uh, initiatives of one sort or another uh, in the security area and particularly in the economic area and the political area. Uh, and they kind of overlap and compete for authority. And the consequence, I think, is that none of them are terribly effective. But uh, but there's a debate about that, too, of course. Well, it's interesting because I was peripherally involved, and I suspect you may have been as well, in that initiative of uh, former Prime Minister uh, Rudd. Uh, he attempted to create this Asia-Pacific community, which he saw mm. as a security uh, uh, community and one that he said uh, finally brought together the the leading players with ASEAN and my own impression and you may have a different one was that there was significant pushback uh, from the ASEAN members particularly from uh, Singapore and the Philippines and so forth they they were not they were not on board with respect to this enlarged security uh, apparatus. I think that's exactly right. And I think that one of the reasons that they weren't on board was because uh, they didn't like where the suggestion was coming from, to be frank. And I think they thought it was slightly impertinent that somebody from Australia mm -hmm. would be making a suggestion about how the Southeast Asian nations should uh, conduct their diplomatic activities and about the future trajectory of regional cooperation. So if they'd have come up with the idea, they might have been slightly more enthusiastic <laughs> about it. But because it was Kevin Rudd and Australia, I think there was quite a bit of resistance to the idea uh, in in principle. So, uh, but but interestingly, that that idea, the APC, the uh, the ASEAN, uh, the Asian Pacific Community, mm -hmm. that idea essentially, uh, some people would argue has actually come into being, and albeit under a different name, because there's now something called the East Asia Summit, right. which brings together all of the countries that uh, Kevin Rudd was suggesting should be in the APC. Uh, it's under a def different uh, rubric, and uh, it's not uh, exclusively a uh, security uh, community. Uh, it's not entirely sure certain what it is at all, to be frank, but it does include 
importantly, the United States, which has begun to, or certainly under Barack Obama, uh, it had begun to take that the idea of institutional re-engagement with the region uh, very seriously. So countries like Australia were very pleased that the United States was institutionally engaged in the region once more. But it also includes uh, India and China, of course, as mm -hmm. well. So uh, potentially, it's a very important organization. But potentially, a lot of the organizations in the region are important. But it's it's translating that uh, vision into reality. And I, it's interesting because I was looking back about over some of the summits, and it's, it's striking that the 2016 summit of ASEAN, uh, its central goal was turning uh, vision into reality. And you would have thought that, uh, you know, what, how many years that is after the organization was initiated was uh, inaugurated that they would have got round to doing some of that already but clearly <laughs> this is a work in progress and uh, it doesn't happen terribly rapidly in this part of the world I don't think. Okay, uh, I, it raises the question uh, about Australia because you mentioned its uh, in and out involvement. Uh, there have been suggestions recently that Australia should join ASEAN. Does that make any sense Mark? Uh, I, well I think not really, okay. uh, on both sides probably. I think for, from an Australian perspective, they're very conscious of the fact that they need to have good relations with ASEAN. They want to in a genuine sort of way, I think, but it's not easy. And historically there have been occasional falling out, uh, most famously with uh, Mohammed Mahathir of, uh, well, the, the newly installed, or reinstalled Prime Minister of Malaysia in his first iteration in that job. He famously had a few fallings out with uh, Australia, and there's been occasional tiffs with Indonesia over the years. So relations between Australia and Southeast Asia are generally pretty good, mm -hmm. but they have had their moments of ups and downs. And the basis upon which Australia could join is far from clear, because it would be a big country right. uh, in the grouping, and there'd be great sensitivity about some of the smaller world. Well, most of the countries in ASEAN about the role that uh, that Australia might play, bringing in a different set of values, the kind of legalistic approach to uh, uh, diplomacy and those kinds of things might not go down too well with the uh, ASEAN uh, states. I mean, significantly, Australia hosted uh, a meeting of the ASEAN leaders recently in Australia, and I think that went well, but it was, again, long on rhetoric and short on actual uh, tangible commitments to do anything in particular, but uh, but I think yes, Australia is definitely keen to maintain good relations. But I would be quite surprised uh, if anything more formal came out of that. Oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> let me ask. I mean, you know, China, if I understand correctly, is the largest trading partner with ASEAN. So how does ASEAN then balance the at least this, you know, um, uh, d deep uh, economic activity with China uh, as against, let's say, the United States. How, how, how does ASEAN treat uh, that, uh, you know, that, that balance? It's, it's a real challenge, and it is for my own country, Australia, as well. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so the whole region, basically, is coming to terms with the trying to figure out whether the rise of China <clears throat> in inverted commas is more of a uh, a threat than an opportunity or vice versa and this is not an easy thing to uh, to make a judgment about for some of the country countries in the region which have been famously very nervous about their security 
uh, and uh, their sovereignty. So uh, making a judgment about this is is uh, very tricky. But uh, and I think it it highlights uh, the uh, difference between what people have uh, begun to describe as so-called geoeconomic power, and that's the kind of leverage that uh, sheer economic uh, importance gives different countries, China in particular, because as you mentioned, it's everybody's biggest trade partner these days. Mm -hmm. So you've got geoeconomic power on the one hand that China represents increasingly versus geopolitical power, which is something that used to be associated primarily with the United States. And I think there are real concerns in the region about what the United States' relationship with the region is going to be in the long term, whether it's any longer a reliable security partner. Because, again, one of the prevailing uh, ideas, if not myths, in the region is that the United States has been an indispensable force for security and stability in the region, without which the region might tear itself apart or do something dreadful. Mm -hmm. I think we're seeing an active test of uh, that mm. Uh, idea at the moment because clearly the Trump administration's attitude towards the world is very different from the attitudes of uh, certainly Barack Obama's before him and uh, Barack Obama had made a big deal of the so-called pivot to Asia and re-establishing uh, the United States uh, strategic presence in the region uh, as more than just rhetoric and I think that was welcomed by many people in the region I think now there are real doubts emerging about whether the Trump administration is going to play a similar sort of role and what the implications of uh, the rise of China as a strategic power uh, might look like in the future in the region as a consequence. Hmm. Well, let's look at both as we begin to wind down here, Mark. First of all, on the geopolitical, the, the Trump administration at least has raised uh, this this vision of Indo-Pacific, right, and the strategic partners there are Japan, the United States, India, and Australia. How, how does ASEAN react uh, to to that initiative? Uh, how uh, you know is there is there legs to that? And if so, how how does ASEAN uh, deal with this growing strategic partnership? Yeah, well, I think it's interesting because Australia has been one of the principal driving forces. Australia and Japan have been the principal driving forces behind this idea of the Indo-Pacific, I think. And it's not hard to see why from the perspective of those countries, because both of them uh, have long-standing, close strategic ties to the United States. Both right. of them are keen for the United States to remain strategically engaged in the region. Both of them are very concerned about the rise of China for similar sorts of reasons and Australia in particular is keen to position itself quite literally at the center of this uh, new regional uh, way of thinking about uh, Australia's uh, immediate region. So the Indo-Pacific serves a lot of useful purposes as far as Australia is concerned, particularly in trying to get India itself uh, to be engaged as part of this regional process. Now there's a hope, I think, amongst some of the kind of realists amongst the Australian strategic community and indeed in the United States, that India will play a kind of more active balancing role 
uh, to offset the rise of China. Now, whether India is going to want to do that is a, an open question, uh, but I think that's the general kind of thinking. Now, as far as ASEAN is concerned, uh, ASEAN, as, a, as I mentioned before, is always nervous about any rival organization or initiative emerging that doesn't include them at the center of it. And I think, in some ways, uh, this is a kind of implicit uh, indictment of ASEAN that they haven't been uh, a central partner in this kind of initiative because they're not seen, uh, I don't think, as having that kind of strategic significance or indeed coherence, particularly when it comes to responding to the strategic implications of China's rise because one of the things that's been revealed about the strategic rise of China is that ASEAN is pretty hopelessly divided and incapable of coming up with a coherent response to what is arguably arguably the greatest strategic challenge that ASEAN has faced you know, in the last 20 or 30 years, possibly since its inception. So uh, China's territorial claims in the South China Sea mm -hmm. directly affect a number of ASEAN states. Uh, and you would think if ever there was a moment for ASEAN solidarity in the face of a threatening external power, this would be it, and they'd come up with a coherent response. In reality, they haven't been able to do so, in part because China's played a very skillful role of divide and rule, right. and it's effectively bought off a couple of the ASEAN members, particularly Cambodia, and now Cambodia is very reluctant to ever say anything critical about China, so China's wielding a sort of proxy veto in ASEAN decision-making on security issues. So I think that's part of the kind of background uh, about why the Indo-Pacific uh, initiative uh, and the so-called uh, quad relationship between India, Japan, the United States and Australia has more or less gone ahead without ASEAN and uh, they've been fairly marginalized by the whole process but in some ways they've only got themselves to blame I think. <laughs> and does this help to explain why notwithstanding the negotiation uh, between uh, China and the ASEAN members over conduct uh, in the South China Sea um, that in fact uh, they, they've been unable to uh, you know in effect secure an agreement on, on, on that between ASEAN and China. Yes I, I think that the, the organization is uh, really divided and mm -hmm. uh, at one time I thought it was just uh, a division between the so-called uh, mainland ASEAN states and the so-called uh, uh, maritime ASEAN states, the likes of uh, the Philippines, Indonesia, etc. But I, I think it's more complex than that because uh, the Philippines is a, a really interesting country in this context because initially uh, Duterte made a big play of saying that he was going to stand up to China and that he was going to stand up for Philippine sovereign territorial rights, etc., etc. But since he's been in power, uh, he's dutifully gone off to Beijing and uh, tried to ingratiate himself with his Chinese hosts and uh, in return for possibly substantial investment uh, in the Philippines and its much-needed infrastructure. So uh, it's interesting that China's been able to win over uh, some of the countries that you would think would be most vehemently opposed to their territorial claims in the South China Sea. So I think while ever China is able to 
pretty skillfully exercised diplomacy and picking off the different Southeast Asian countries with inducements or a bit of bullying here and there, whatever they're able to do that in this fairly skillful way. I don't think there's much chance of uh, the ASEAN states coming up with a very coherent collective response to this pretty fundamental challenge. And that, I think, is a pretty big indictment of ASEAN and its effectiveness at the moment. Hmm. Well, and let's shift then to the geoeconomic. It appears that at the conclusion of the most recent uh, summit, that is the April meeting, I guess it's the 32nd meeting actually in, in Singapore, there seemed to be some new impetus to seal uh, the uh, RCEP agreement, that is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement, which of course includes ASEAN, China, uh -huh. Australia, India, Japan, Korea, and New Zealand. What's the state of that, notwithstanding uh, the, the declaration in Singapore at the end of the summit? Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And uh, I think the historical record about these kinds of big picture trade agreements would uh, encourage a bit of uh, skepticism about what's likely to happen. But I think my reading of this for what it's worth is that I think the significant thing that's happening at the moment is the difference in approach to the region between China and the US. Uh, the US used to be thought of, of course, as the uh, the stalwart standard bearer for economic liberalism and multilateralism and mm -hmm. the famous uh, institutionalization of the rules-based international order. This is what we used to think that America stood for and it played this a vital leadership role in providing these kinds of things. Now, interestingly, Trump has repudiated and has a complete disdain for many of these kinds of things, it seems, and doesn't seem committed to them in the slightest and takes a much more transactional approach, America first approach to all of these kinds of questions. And I think that's registered with many people in the region, including some stalwart allies of, uh, of the United States. China, by contrast, is uh, actively trying to position itself as a champion of economic liberalization. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a bit of hypocrisy uh, in this, clearly, because it's not uh, the most economically liberal country in the world by a, a large uh, stretch. But but the fact that it can, it can use this kind of rhetoric and it can be taken seriously when Xi Jinping goes off to the Davos meeting and to APEC and makes uh, headline speeches about standing up for the... Uh, for economic liberalization and uh, greater uh, economic integration within the region and be taken seriously, I think that tells you something really important about how much has changed in the region uh, and the fact that it might be China who's going to drive uh, these kinds of regional trade agreements in the future rather than the United States. And if that does come to pass, it will mean that China's uh, geoeconomic leverage will be enhanced, particularly if it can follow up with real tangible investment through things like the One Belt, One Road initiative, which promises to uh, provide a real windfall of uh, direct uh, investment in many of the Southeast Asian countries that still need that kind of uh, infrastructural development and would welcome that kind of direct investment. So it's a really kind of interesting story at the moment about this uh, changing uh, rivalry between the China and the United States in a way that that's playing out in the region. It, uh, very interesting. Let me let me raise this. I mean, both Vietnam and Malaysia, obviously ASEAN members, are also now uh, part of the, what's uh, called the comprehensive uh, uh, and progressive 
um, uh, TPP Trans-Pacific Partnership or the TPP 11. So, uh, you know, in this balance as between the, let's say, the TPP 11 and RCEP, how, how does ASEAN work that out in the face of some members actually uh, belonging to this, relatively speaking, advanced uh, trade arrangement? Yeah, well, good question. Uh, one assumes that uh, they'll be able to overlap uh, and they won't be mutually exclusive uh, and there won't be problems about uh, being members of both organizations. So if uh, they come to fruition in the way that their architects uh, intend. So uh, that's, that's, that's an interesting aspect of the way that many of these regional trade agreements have evolved over time. But, People have been members of quite a few of them simultaneously. And, you know, let's not forget about things like APEC, which most of the members of the uh, ASEAN grouping are in and most of the countries of the region are in as well. And you've got to wonder how many of these kinds of big uh, trade organizations and agreements the the region actually needs at any particular time and whether it might not be better just to have uh, one that does an effective job uh, as an economic organization and maybe one that does an effective job as a security organization. And I think it's it's kind of testimony to the fact that maybe none of these have been doing a fantastic job, but they <laughs> keep coming up with more and more and endlessly reproducing them and uh, uh, for no obvious uh, benefit at times. But uh, but that's a kind of a slightly skeptical view, no doubt, but, uh, but one you might be forgiven for, for looking at the history of the region perhaps. Well, in winding up, I guess the, the kind of the big question is: uh, Does does ASEAN and more broadly the kind of Asia Pacific uh, survive uh, the age of Trump and the America First policy, or do we see growing tension and hedging on the part of various members to try to deal with this uh, this new kind of perspective from the United States? Well, it's a, it's a it's a good and it's a very important question. It's a it's a difficult one to answer, to be to be frank, because there are a lot of variables and imponderables at work, and it's pretty hard to say what Donald Trump's going to do tomorrow. Never mind in uh, <laughs> or seven years' time. So, uh, but uh, but I think what, what we what we can say is that uh, I think confidence in America's uh, traditional style of engaging with the region has taken a, a serious blow. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that will be repaired by a new president in the future. But I mean, the other point to think about, I think, in this kind of thing is that Trump's going to be around for at least three, possibly seven years. Uh, and the world's going to look pretty different. Uh, it might look pretty different in three days with Donald Trump in charge, but it's gonna, certainly going to look pretty different in three or seven years, if only because all of the things being equal, and if we extrapolate from here, which is always difficult and dangerous, of course, but if we extrapolate from here, China is going to be more powerful again mm-hmm. than it is at the moment. And uh, my guess for what it's worth is if nothing goes wrong in China and things could go wrong in China because there are economic issues that people have been pointing to for a number of years now. They haven't happened, but they could. And there are, if there's an economic crisis in China, there will undoubtedly be a political crisis as well, I think. So things could go wrong in China, but if they don't, uh, I think it's not unreasonable to suggest that China will be, uh, well, I think it already is the dominant power in East Asia, but it might be the dominant power in the Indo-Pacific or the Asia-Pacific or whatever you want to call the region that uh, tradi- traditionally China has dominated. And the big question then, I think, will be 
whether the Trump administration or his successors think it's worth actually getting into a potential conflict with China mm -hmm. about deciding uh, what America's strategic relationship with the region is. Uh, I mean, it's possible that uh, Trump might make a deal in which he agrees to pull uh, troops out of the region in return for uh, North Korea denuclearizing and China guaranteeing its security. I mean, who knows what might come out of the, mm -hmm. uh, the current configuration of strategic powers and political powers in the region at the moment. But my guess is that all of the things being equal, in certainly 20 years, maybe less, that China will unambiguously dominate the region uh, and it will probably be, uh, from an American perspective, too late uh, to do terribly much about it. Uh, and I don't think there's a lot of appetite uh, to start a big war with China uh, over the fate of the Asia-Pacific. And I think, you know, there's a certain inevitability uh, about China's uh, rise to preeminence in the region in, in the way that historically it's dominated the region for thousands of years. So mm -hmm. uh, we now think of as East Asia. So in some ways, you know, we might just be seeing a kind of return to geopolitical business as usual with China's rise and uh, preeminence and uh, and the fact that America might withdraw to its own part of the world, maybe we're going to go back to seeing something that looks a bit more like the 19th century spheres of influence than some of us thought we were going to see in terms of a global community that was deeply integrated in economic and political ways. So, uh, but I think whatever happens in the future, I mean, this part of the world is going to play a very, very big role in deciding what it looks like, and China's going to play a very big role in deciding what it looks like as well, I think. So it, from your perspective, Mark, it's both a kind of geopolitical and geoeconomic, that is the United States uh, being hindered or limited in the role it can play or in the going into the future um, in both economic and political terms? Well, I, I think there's no doubt that uh, we've had the debate about America and decline several times in my lifetime. And, yep. Uh, yep. And, and cynics say there's nothing new about this and America will bounce back and it's still the most powerful country in the world. And there's something in that argument, no doubt. Uh, but there's no doubt either that in a remarkably short space of time, China has become the second biggest economy in the world and pretty soon it's likely to become the biggest economy in the world. Mm -hmm. There's still issues about not everybody in China is fabulously wealthy and there's still a lot of development to do. Uh, but that doesn't take anything away from the fact that China matters a lot more than it did uh, 10 years ago, never mind 20 or 30 years ago. So it's become very important and it's getting a kind of uh, strategic profile to match that economic importance. And I think realists are... Got, got a point to make about that, that countries, when they tend to get rich, they tend to spend a bit of that money on guns and bombs. I mean, that's been the historical pattern that all countries seem to have followed, and China's no great exception to that. So I think the, the question is what America does about that, because I think it's, you know, one of the great ironies and paradoxes about the relationship between China and the United States, and this is a pretty complicated uh, set of relationships that probably merits a separate program, but, uh, <laughs> but I mean, it's essentially China's lending uh, America some of the money to underpin America's hegemonic pretensions and possibly manage its decline in some ways. So there's a great uh, irony in that. And at the moment, it's a good thing because uh, it, that degree of interdependence, I think, is the best guarantee that we have that uh, things won't descend into conflict between the United States and China, because I think both sides recognize they've got a big stake 
in the status quo, and it would be cataclysmic if they did have a conflict. But that's not to say that it can't happen, of course. But my guess is it won't, for what it's worth. Uh, but the corollary of that is that I think uh, America will decline relatively to uh, China. It will still be a very important and consequential country. But I think coming to terms with what that might mean uh, in terms of the kind of national psyche, if you like, in America, will be a very interesting part of the equation, as is uh, the heightened sense of nationalism in China as they become more and more important uh, and the impact that that's having on China's national psyche, as it, as it were, as well. So I think it's a, it's a very interesting moment, but I think we have to take seriously the possibility that uh, China and America's relative significance is certainly changing. Um, there's nothing inevitable about how it will play itself out, but it's it's definitely not what it was even five or ten years ago, I mm -hmm. think. And Trump, I think the significance of his uh, administration may be that he might accelerate some of these processes in a way, or highlight them at least, in a way that maybe they might not have happened in quite the same dramatic fashion that they may well do at the moment, I think. Well, I may well take you up, Mark, in the future on, on the uh, China-U.S. Uh, uh, relationship, but I want to thank you for today's podcast and uh, insights into the ASEAN and insights more, more generally in uh, the region itself, which is, of course, a key region, uh, both geopolitically and geoeconomically. So thank you very much. My, my pleasure. Thanks very much, Alan. 